believe my eyes. Why have you come back? Please, sir. We've done what you told us, so we'd like you to keep your promise to us, if you please, sir. Not so fast. Not so fast. I'll have to give the matter a little thought. Go away and come back tomorrow. Tomorrow? Yeah. Do not arouse the wrath of the great and powerful Oz. You ungrateful creatures. Oh, the great Oz has spoken. Oh. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. <laughs> this is Infants on Thrones. The philosophies of men mingled with humans. We are the core. Welcome back to Infants on Thrones. I'm Glenn Ostland, and this is episode 569, The Man Behind the Curtain. And it's called The Man Behind the Curtain for a couple of reasons. First, because of a fascinating conversation that I recently had with Anthony D. Miller, which you'll hear most of today. And then second, because I'm pulling back the curtain a bit to give you some sneak peeks of some of the great content available on the Patreon side of the curtain that is not available on the non-Patreon side of the curtain. But first, but first, for any of you who live in the Phoenix area, this upcoming Saturday, February 9th, 2019, I will be attending the Sunstone Mini Conference at the Phoenix Central Community of Christ Church. Now, it starts at 1 p.m., and at 1.30, there's a presentation with this in the subtitle. Einstein explains Kolob and space-time. All right, say no more. <laughs> I am all over that. I can't wait to hear what Joseph Callender has to say about Kolob time from Abraham 3. Then at 3 p.m., there will be a group discussion on Mormon identity led by Terrell Musser, Hawk Girl, Angela Liscom, Clayton, and Tim Corey. And then at 5.30, some dude named John Larson is going to be talking about leaving the church but not being able to leave it alone. So, yeah, I'll be there to soak all of it in, and I hope you'll be there too. And if you are, come say hello. I'd love to meet you. And now, let's jump right into my conversation with Anthony. Now, what you're going to hear today is a redacted version of the two-part two-plus-hour conversation that I had with Anthony that was published on Patreon earlier this weekend. And then I'll do some extended Easter eggs for you with some other little fun goodies, including some clips of our very own brother Jake doing a Jeremy Goff smackdown that we recorded last November, just a few short weeks before he suffered his cardiac arrest. And Jake is doing great in his recovery, by the way. So let's go off to see the wizard. The wonderful wizard of Oz. We hear he is a wizard of wiz, if ever a wiz there was. If ever, oh, ever a wiz there was, the wizard of Oz is one because, 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 because. You know, when I was a little kid, I used to think that said. Bill Cosby, because, 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 you know, because I was a big Bill Cosby fan. Because of the wonderful things he does. And then I thought it said Bill Cosby, the wonderful things he does. But we all know now that's, that's not true. So, oh, sad. Damn it, Bill Cosby. All right. We're off to see the wizard, the wonderful wizard of love. Anyway, um... Some of the things I think that we'll talk about today can explain the why I had such a degree of certainty that it was true and, and why it worked. 
so well for me. And um, about 33 months ago, uh, our then 22-year-old son came out to us as gay. Mm. And, and that was something that I could not shelf. And I had very heavy shelves just because of the way my mind works and my memory and so forth. And so I went online to search for resources to figure out how to best support uh, a gay son who I would not believe that God would want to live a life absent the intimacy that my wife and I share sure, yeah. comprehensively. And, and in one weekend uh, in, in late April uh, 2016, I stumbled across the essays that I didn't know existed. Um, the CES letter, Fair Mormon's response to it, Fair Mormon's big list of all these other different issues, uh, and Mormon stories and Mormon think. And so within 72 hours, like it was really an acute existential. That's uh, like an avalanche. It, it was super acute. It just decimated all my shelves. And if I were to pinpoint uh, the, the, the event or the moment that it all totally crashed. It's when I read the race and the priesthood essay and I read Brigham Young's February, 1852 speech that is cited source num number nine, where Brigham Young announced the ban. And mm -hmm. in that speech, he talks about blood atonement and all sorts of other disavowed doctrines and things and is that in the journal of discourses it is uh um that particular talk i don't think is in the journal of discourses but it's linked on lds.org i'm gonna have to look that up so i'm gonna have to, I'm gonna have to do an episode on that, uh, on that to, oh it's an amazing channel brigham young and do some kind of a recreation of that now you want to break down that speech for sure yeah yeah okay so here's the first insert because i definitely <laughs> i definitely want to do this so i went and i looked it up um and anthony if you're listening to this you'll have to tell me you'll have to let me know if i'm looking at the right thing but this is february 5th joint session 1852 10 a.m Governor Young was requested to give his views on slavery, all right? And so now I've got to, like, try to channel my inner Brigham Young, so I just kind of have to think of, like, a really angry jerk guy, because that's kind of how I picture him, like, entitled and, like, so I'll make a few remarks. I don't know. I can't do it yet in character, but I'll do it eventually. The items before the house, I do not understand the principle of slavery. I understand I have self-confidence and confidence in God enough to believe I do, I believe still further that a great many others understand it as I do. A good portion of this community have been instructed and apply their minds to it, and as far as they have agreeing precisely, and as far as they have agreeing precisely in principles of slavery, my first remark would be upon the cause of the introduction of slavery. The two pieces took little the little long Mama Eve, our good old Mother Eve, took forbidden fruit and make a slave of her to Adam. They hated it very much to have her take it out of the Garden of Eden. And now Daddy Adam days. I don't know. Okay, so this is this is rough. I'm gonna have to like get through this, but this is interesting. So thank you, Anthony. I'm gonna be pursuing this. So in the next couple of days, uh, we'll we'll do a little smacksturbation, maybe or a recreation of uh, this thing. We'll get to hear all about Cain and Abel. Awesome. Fantastic. All right. Now back to the conversation. So, yeah. um, 
in reading that speech, I came to a full realization for myself that I had, I, I had spiritual experiences, but my construct was false because I believed that they were divine witnesses of truth. But I realized that I had had spiritual experiences that had witnessed of inaccurate uh, things partially or fully. And I recognized with that essay that the brethren for over 125 years did not have the capacity to discern the difference between their own biases and prejudices and divine inspiration from God. So there were mm. no mantles of discernment. And today's brethren could summarily disavow things that were testified of as doctrinal and God's will in the past, which meant that we could have no confidence that future brethren wouldn't disavow what we said today. Sure. And without mantles of discernment and without spiritual experiences actually being reliable witnesses of truth, it just, everything crashed for me. And um, it, the rabbit hole experience where I just kind of felt like everything went dark and I was falling uh, happened. And Gina Colvin uses the language that people that go through an acute faith crisis experience, God, God leaving the corner of the room where they once knew him. That was my experience. So I went. Yeah, because that's what I was going to ask you. Because you yeah. you said that every like everything was shattered for you. Everything, yeah. E even e even those things that were like personal experiences for you that were that you would call spiritual now that, that yeah. you lost all confidence in that too. So so uh, so I'll give you an example. Yeah. So um, during the years that I was gospel doctrine teacher, I would. Uh, in the week before my class, I would study the material with a prayer in my heart. I would uh, ask Heavenly Father to help me be an instrument in his hands to touch the lives of others. I would think about the people in my class. And, and I would feel uh, what I would call spiritual guidance um, as I would figure out what principles from the lesson to emphasize. And then when I would go teach the class on Sunday, I would, I, with a prayer in my heart, I would greet people as they would come into the class. I'd shake their hands or I'd give them a hug or whatnot. And then as I would teach a class, I would try to listen for inspiration as to what people needed. Mm -hmm. Not feeling like I had to cover all of the principles, but, you know, I'm here to be an instrument in the Lord's hands. And sometimes I would feel inspired to emphasize a particular story or concept or continue a different discussion or ask different questions, uh, where I, in a state of love, compassion, vulnerability, empathy, um, and uh, a perception of participating in acts of moral goodness that are associated with the elevation emotion, uh, if you read about the elevation emotion, sure, yeah, I would I would experience a deep sense of spiritual connection with the people in the class, and and this was a repeatable, verifiable type of experience because sometimes I'd have people come up after class or write me notes or send me an email saying, "I just want you to know that I was really struggling struggling with this particular thing, and what we talked about was exactly what I was searching for or exactly what I needed," and so I. Uh, um, so I, I, it was just this positive feedback loop of having these experience uh, of spiritual connection with my class 
um, and uh, reinforcement that I was giving people what they needed. And to me, that was a divine witness of the truthfulness of the subject matter or the setting or the thing in the Mm -hmm. lesson that I was testifying of. And in many cases, after uh, during my faith deconstruction and that particular weekend when everything crashed, I recognized that I had taught and testified of things that were partially or entirely inaccurate from what was in the essays, but I had spiritual witnesses of the truthfulness of what I was saying or at least I perceived that I was. And so um, that being on the high council, serving in the temple, mission and so forth. So when I recognized the construct was false, what was acute is that I didn't want to give up all those past experiences because they were sacred to me. Yeah. And I was afraid to sit down as a linear thinker you know, with a a spreadsheet and list all my most significant spiritual experiences and then try to analyze what those things were to try to understand, to reconstruct what those experiences were. And that's why it was so acute um, was I, I, I didn't want to give them all up, but I recognized the construct that them being witnesses of truth was a false construct. How do how do you um, interpret those experiences now. I mean, I, I know we're jumping ahead, but I, I, yeah. I, I want to hit this while we're right on this. Yeah. So um, the most significant books uh, that uh, have helped me in my reconstruction uh, included uh, Sapiens, where uh, yep. Harari talks about how myth constructions are created. God, A Human History uh, with by Reza Aslan, where he talks about you know, by our evolutionary design, um, we're naturally prone to perceive that we're more than our biological selves. Um, we have dreams about where about people are, that are gone, deceased. Um, in art or in nature, we perceive things that aren't there and so forth. So we're naturally prone as human beings to perceive spiritual connection or meaning beyond our biological selves. Uh, and, um, he talks about how myth traditions are created and so forth and how the Yahweh or Jehovah myth came about. And he talks about pantheism that we might talk about a little bit in the future, uh, tonight. And then, um, other books like finding God in the waves, uh, or what is the Bible by Rob Bell, things from Rob Bell and Richard Rohr really helped me. So with that background, my construct is, now or reconciliation now is that as human beings by our evolutionary design when we participate in perceive or are recipients of acts of moral goodness we experience the elevation emotion which is a release of dopamine in our system and michael ferguson has talked about that too Um, and um, it increases our charitable disposition uh, increases our tolerance for others if you were to describe the elevation emotion, it's the fruits of the spirit. It's a warmth in your chest and your heart and so forth. Um, you become more perceptive and tolerant of others. And, and my perception now or reconciliation now is that what religions have done is identified that feeling or experience as divine or as God. And different religions then develop constructs to describe what that experience is. So in a lot of Christianity, that experience of feeling 
the spirit or transcendent elevation emotion type experiences might be that it's communion with God. But in Mormonism, it's a divine witness of truth. And Mormons are really good at acts of moral goodness, right? We're family oriented, we have community, we teach lessons about things that are good and inspiring and so forth. So we have this positive feedback loop where we participate in things that are acts of moral goodness. And then we have these spiritually connecting experiences, whether we're spiritual beings or whether it's just elevation emotion or a combination of those things. We have this positive feedback loop of experiences that work, that reinforce that we have those experiences, which means it's true and it's testable because I can bear testimony or I can teach a lesson or I can go do service as a home or teacher or a minister ministering now or whatnot. And I can have those positive experiences that reinforce the truthfulness of the narrative and the construct works. At least it worked for me until I recognized that I had those experiences about things that were partially or entirely inaccurate. And then it was like, seeing the wizard behind the curtain right you couldn't yeah. be the wizard anymore seeing the wizard behind the curtain right you couldn't be the wizard anymore you couldn't be the wizard anymore. you couldn't be the wizard all right i'm gonna cut in again here because oh i love i, I love everything that anthony just said uh, it, it's worth listening to multiple times if you didn't catch it all the first time there's just so much in there but this idea of coming to recognize that you are the wizard behind the curtain and then you can't do it anymore that's a really interesting idea to me and so i i assume that everybody understands the metaphor this is this is from the wizard of oz right so the wizard of oz where dorothy and her friends they go and they see this great magnificent wizard and it's a scary face and there's smoke and fire and and you know sound effects and who dares come before the wizard of oz and then like in the last scene the little dog goes and she sees that it's really this guy that's behind a curtain that's created the whole smoke and mirrors perception of the wizard and uh, there there is this man behind the curtain and so then the 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 parallel would be I think that here we are raised in whatever belief system, whatever culture we want to talk about, but specifically we're talking about the Mormon culture, the Mormon belief system. And from a very young age, all we really see is the smoke and the mirrors and just this big impressive image. And we don't really see the the man that's behind the curtain we don't really even know what that curtain is we don't really know the the buttons and bells and whistles that are being pulled to create this image that we're seeing but then uh, you know through a faith crisis a lot of people experience this where they kind of see these connections and they recognize oh wait a second either other people are the man behind the curtain or I'm the man behind the curtain. I'm the one. And that's that's kind of the area that I want to focus on. This idea that I have been the one that has been creating these smoke and mirrors for myself all the time using these tools that I was given by my culture, by my belief system to create and man manufacture this illusion. And so then there's the question, once you realize that that is you, 
and you've been doing it the whole time, what prevents you from continuing to do it? Why can't you do it anymore? And if the, if the reasons that you were doing it previously, if there was some benefit to, to you, like the, the, the social needs that we all have to be part of a group and to serve people in the group and, you know, the, the bells and whistles, the man behind the curtain act was doing that for us. What is it that keeps us from, from doing that further? What, why is it that we walk away and we say we can't do this anymore? And I, I'd be interested to hear your responses to that, what you guys think about this. I, I, I think as, as I think about it for myself, it, it has to do with integrity because it seems fake. And you don't want to be fake. You want to be authentic. So then there's this whole time of self-discovery to figure out, well, what, who is this man behind the curtain in the first place? I've, o- I've only ever known the illusion that's out here. Who is this man or woman behind the, the curtain? And then is there a way to go, oh, okay, I see. Everyone in society is kind of a man behind a curtain. Everybody's kind of pulling these bells and whistles and creating an illusion. And everything that we see of everybody else is kind of an illusion. It's kind of what they're projecting, what they, how they want to be perceived, and then our abilities or inabilities to perceive them, whether it's as they want to be perceived or as how we're seeing. You know, there's always these, these curtains that we're behind that kind of obfuscate who we really are from each other's views and especially ourselves. Do we know who, who we are? And I think if, if you can get to a point of better self-understanding and recognizing that you don't have to conform to things that make you feel uncomfortable for whatever reason, but you can just be yourself and every expression of yourself in some way is kind of like the man behind the curtain pulling the bells and whistles to create an illusion or to create some kind of an image that the outside world perceives you, then maybe you can go back to being the man behind the curtain and do it with even more intention where it's not, it's not just this is something that I inherited and I'm stuck and I have to do these things that would sacrifice my integrity, you know, I have to, I have to think that homosexuals are less than, or I have to think that people who drink coffee are less than, or, you know, take, take whatever elements of the culture made you uncomfortable and don't really fit with who you actually are. And you figure out who you are and you go back into it and you can be the man behind the curtain again with all of the power that goes along with those bells and whistles and illusions and with the recognition, oh my gosh, how fun would it be with the recognition of you're doing this with other people that we all know it's an act and we, we all know that it's play and it's a game that we're doing, but it's a game that has really powerful ramifications. I don't know. It's an interesting idea that I had as I was listening back to this moment in the conversation with Anthony. So I just wanted to throw that out there to you listeners and see if that stimulates any thoughts on your end, anything that you might want to share. So thank you for letting me jump in. Let's go back to the conversation with Anthony now. So the acute, you know, for a period, it was a traumatic event. 
when everything crashed and there was a period of weeks where basically God ceased to exist for me. I went from, you know, one day or one weekend feeling spiritually connected uh, to reading some material on the church's website, recognizing that the construct of witness of truth was false for me, and then pleading with God to try to understand and reconcile things and nothing just like it just ceased to exist. Right. And I did all the things that I would have counseled someone to do as high priest group leader or whatnot. Pray, uh, talk to your leaders, read pray. the scriptures. I got blessings. I never yeah. read scriptures so much in my life except for my mission. Yeah. Um, I did all of those things and, and, and and because of that trauma of recognizing those things and having to reconstruct things, it took a period of time of dark night of the soul um, before uh, I could process the grief and have things shift inside of me again to where I could begin to experience a sense of either spiritual connection or elevation emotion, whatever you want to refer it to again. So there was a period of probably six weeks where it was just none of that. And uh, it was extraordinarily depressing. Right. And, um, but as, as I began to heal, as things shifted inside of me, I could begin to have those experiences again, but they never returned to be the exact same as they were before. So God never returned to the corner of the room where I once knew him, but I began to feel a sense of connection to others um, and it works for me at this point in my life to call it spiritual connection, but it very well may just be by our evolutionary design, we experience the elevation emotion when we do good things. And I don't really care if it's just elevation emotion. Like I like that feeling. So sure. let's go, let's go do acts of moral goodness. Let's do things that feed us in that way and that, prompt those types of experiences, whether it's God or not. Yeah. Uh, of those books that you mentioned, I, I think only Sapiens is the one that I'm familiar with. I, I don't think I've read God of Human History, Finding God in the Waves, or What is the Bible? Yeah. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll check those out because that sounds interesting to me. I, I you know, my, my list uh, includes Sapiens. It includes the uh, Jonathan Haidt stuff, The yeah. Righteous Mind. Um, yeah. Uh, social by Matthew Lieberman, yeah. um, which I, I haven't finished yet. I'm I'm slowly getting through, but I it, it 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 shows it makes me think of all of the things that I just walked away from. You know, like that that I I understand enough because of my uh, background studying folklore and tradition about the symbols that we create. That, that actually means something else behind the symbol and we focus on only on the symbol and we start reverent, you know, being reverent to the symbol. And then we have symbols that represent symbols and symbols that represent symbols. And you get so far away from what the thing actually is. Right. And different cultures create different symbols, create different words, different, you know, all, all these different things. So maybe what we're calling elevation, maybe what we're calling the spirit, maybe it, it could be called all of these different things. But what it is, is the, biological need that we've evolved with to be connected to a group of people for our own protection. 
and mm-hmm. our own benefit and to benefit them and to help them. And we, because for thousands and thousands of years, we co-evolved with these fictions that played this very valuable function in our lives. Um, once we find out that they're fictions, because this particular culture of Mormonism that we were a part of insists on everything being literal, we don't really have the tools to go, okay, I'm going to keep doing this thing of spiritual connection with these group of people that I really do care about, even though some of them you don't, but you know, you, you right. care about the people that are in your ward. Um, but there's this requirement of literal belief and you can't really do it either if you're not literally believing. So you throw it all away and then there's the baby in the bathwater metaphor and stuff. Yeah. And so so try ch- to come back to it, reclaim it now is the, is the challenge. Where do you find that? Yeah. So rigid, rigid constructs are brittle. Yeah. And uh, a, a McConkie Benson Packer Hinckley construct is brittle. Yes. Because it's just too inflexible. So I would add two more things before we move forward. Um, in addition to the elevation emotion, uh, uh, which is really important to us, um, we experience confirmation bias. So, for example, a Toyota Camry is the most common car on the road or something like that. But if you drive a white uh, Chevy Impala, all you see is Chevy Impalas on the road. And if I, if you never drove a Toyota Camry and I asked you, how many did you see this morning? You, they were all invisible to you. But with confirmation bias, if you bought a Toyota Camry next week, all of a sudden you would notice all of them on the road. And in Mormonism, uh, when we're in that construct, because of confirmation bias, we see all these things that make us feel larger than, you know, 0.067% of the world's population. Yeah. And um, all these confirming things. And then there's the illusory truth effect, where if you're exposed to or you repeat things yourself multiple times, the way your mind works is you believe that it's true. And so little kids getting up and bearing their testimony in, uh, in sacrament meeting and fast and testimony meeting, the more they say it, the more they believe it's true. Right. Uh, that, that's just how our mind works. And then be, you combine confirmation bias and then you combine the reliable and repeatable experiences of elevation emotion and you can develop a degree of certainty, which is what happened. And, and especially when this, the, the symbols, and I'm talking about the words that are used in that testimony, aren't even, I believe that it's true, but I know that it's true. I know you're, that it's true. You're, you're reinforcing, you know, so you're, you're recreating what the word no means. You're recreating what knowledge actually means compared with how other people in the world use it. Yeah. And um, yeah, you, you get really convinced in the certainty of your thing. And, and probably, I would guess, if your son wasn't gay, you probably would still be in the church because the, the things that you were taught about, you know, the, the world... Yeah. didn't really have anything that it was conflicting against that made you have to pause and go, well, wait a second. The, you know, the church says love everybody, have this really wide uh, boundary of acceptance, but it's drawing the line right here, and that line is harmful to somebody that I dearly love in my son right. and, and, and kind of forced you <laughs> into that weekend. Am I right? Yeah, um, I, I think I think so. I mean, I had really heavy shelves uh, 
because I recognized conflicts in scriptures and sure. other inconsistencies. And there were, and another part, a painful part of my faith crisis was the recognition that I had shelved my inner voice. So my inner voice told me in November 2015 that the exclusion policy was wrong. But my but I shelved it in faith that I'd receive further light and knowledge someday because the brethren have discernment, right? Right, yeah. So um, we talk about this in our Mormon Spectrum group. Since I'm an extrovert uh, and the way my mind works and I felt so alone in my faith crisis and thought I was the only one in my community, I created a Mormon Spectrum support group. Uh, and we started meeting a year ago and we've grown exponentially. Uh, apparently, I'm not the only one in Billings, Montana, oh, yeah. uh, that that ha- is going through this, and 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 sometimes we have conversations to to ask ourselves or ask each other is what what brings people to a point in their life where they're ready to unpack their shelves, and for me, it was I could not shelf my son being gay and what that meant. For other people, it might be the role of women. For other people, it might be hitting a big list. So my son being gay isn't what put me in is not what put me in faith crisis. It was the big list of reading the essays and the CES letter and Mormon Think and Fair Mormon. But I think that I probably would have had an increased capacity to figure out some sort of apologetic reconciliation for a lot of that stuff, uh, or it would have made me uncomfortable and I wouldn't have studied it if if my son coming out as gay didn't put me in a position where I would be open to unpack my shelves. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, I think I I estimate that I probably still would have experienced a faith transition because the, uh, in 2017, the essays showed up as supplementary material uh, for the church history gospel doctrine year. Mm. And, and even though I was ward mission leader and I was teaching uh, gospel principles, I still would read the Sunday school lessons every week. And so I would have stumbled onto the essays uh, eight months later. Um, and and I'd like to think, or I, I, I think that it's quite likely that I, being exposed to the essays, that I, I would have ended up in a faith transition, but it probably would not have been as acute uh, and felt as alone as having that happen uh, eight months earlier in 2016 uh, because I stumbled across the big list. None of my local leaders had read the essays. I had no idea about the essays. Nobody had satisfying answers. uh, And I just felt all alone when I was in the midst of it. So, So I don't know. How do we help our friends who are in the church get to a place in their lives where they're ready to unpack their shelves. And, and I think for each person, it's a little bit different. Certainly loving an LGBTQ person can help that. Um, But some people just like my wife is like super, super nuanced. And I don't know that she'll ever go through a faith crisis or transition because she didn't read Mormon doctrine. She didn't perceive gospel, general conference talks as being the equivalent of scripture, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, DNC 138 kind of stuff. And so 
she just experiences divinity and her participation in the church and yeah. she, and it and it works for her so she might she probably will never i don't know if she'll ever go through a faith transition yeah and i i i definitely have gone through phases where i've wanted to I mean, I, I can't. I can't really think of anybody specifically of my friends or family that's in the church that I've wanted to bring out. Um, right. I, I may have felt like that at some point, or you know, like how can I help them open up their eyes and see these things? Um, what, what the way that I view it now, I, I see that there's so much value for them in being part of that community and feeling it that I wouldn't want to rob that of the, if they're able to do that and make that work and it's valuable to them. Um, I just, I really don't want to take that away from them. I, and I, I, <laughs> I, I might have people get angry at me for thinking about it this way, but I, I think that the desire to have other people leave is really kind of, uh, um, stemming from your own personal insecurity and need for validation of your own choice to leave the church. And if, if you could, and, and I, I'll, I'll stop saying, put it in the second person, you and put it in the first person, I, once I started feeling more comfortable about my decisions, then I was more comfortable with other people having differences than that. And, um, that, yeah. that's what I, know. I, I would say definitely, um, that is a really hard point of view to have while you're still processing the stages of grief. Sure. Um, but once you've processed the stages of grief and you're not retraversing them with a high degree of frequency and you're not getting re-wounded on a periodic basis, um, I, my sense is that we can increase our comfort level with a differentiation of experiences uh, that human beings have. So just like I, I would say, uh, I, I had opportunity uh, and I presented in several sessions in Sunstone this year uh, on the gifts of the faith, of a faith crisis, I co-presented on navigating a mis mixed faith marriage. I, I co-presented, and one example that I gave is that it, you know if I have a neighbor who's a Jehovah's Witness who's really faithful, and um, is a really good person, and they're inspired, and they experience divinity in their participation, I could almost uh, perceive that there that, that it's inspiring to see their faithfulness to not celebrate holidays and birthdays. But if my wife and I join the church and then we have a mutual understanding and contract unspoken in terms of our relationship and our goals and so forth, and then all of a sudden she went through a change of faith and she converted to the Jehovah's Witness faith. And um, in her devotion to divinity and God, she felt like we needed to stop celebrating birthdays and holidays but those were sacred precious experiences to us all of a sudden that degree of diverse uh, differentiation becomes extraordinarily painful sure yeah compared to my neighbor and and so we don't in in high demand fundamental fundamentalist type faith traditions we don't tend to do differentiation very well because the narrative is differentiation is is uh of the devil, it's conflict, it's, and so forth. All right, I am going to end part one right here. And I want to ask a question about differentiation. You know, because Anthony was talking about how not, you know, people don't seem to come readily equipped to be able to handle differentiation.
even to the point of thinking that differentiation, things that are different than me, are of the devil. Where is that coming from? What is that all about? Uh, it, it's, such a, it's such a fascinating question to me. I think it's such an important thing to understand about ourselves individually and about others. And um, this may be a little unfair to Tom and Bill. <laughs> so Bill, Bill Real and Tom and I are going to have a conversation next week about um, a Sam Harris, Jordan Peterson uh, discussion recently. I want to play a clip from that right here um, that I think addresses this issue of differentiation. And as, as you listen to it, um, see if you can guess what I'm going to say about it. But more importantly, like, what do you think about what you're hearing here? Um, this is first, you're going to start, uh, you're going to hear Jordan Peterson, and then you'll hear Sam Harris, and then I'll come in at the end of it and tell you why I shared this clip with you. One of the things that was really shocking to me, I would say, was the, the, my reading of what was originally Jane Goodall's discovery about chimp behavior, you know, because there was this idea that was really rooted in Rousseauian thinking that the reason that people committed atrocities in the service of their group identity, let's say their tribal identity, was because culture had corrupted us. So it was a uniquely human thing. But then, of course, Goodall showed in the 1970s that the chimps at Gombe, I think that's, I'm pronouncing that correctly, yep. would go on raiding parties, right? And, and so there'd be like four or five adolescent chimps, usually male, sometimes with a female in there. They would patrol the borders of their territory. If they found an interloper on the border, near the border, from another troop, even if it was a member of their troop that had emigrated, so to speak, and that they, mm. they, that they had had some history with, they would tear them to pieces. And of course, that was shocking to Goodall, but, and, and my understanding is she had some trepidations about publishing it, although she did. But then that's been noted repeatedly in other forms of chimp behavior. So, see, I've been really interested in the commission of atrocity in the service of belief. And it's tempting to pin that, say, on, on dogma and then to associate that with religious dogma. I think that's all tempting. But the fact that chimps do it shows that it can't be a consequence of something like religious belief unless you're willing to say that the reason that chimps commit atrocity in the service of their troop and their territory is because chimps are religious. And so they're not religious and they don't really hold a secular totalitarian viewpoint, but they act out, they still act out the, the atrocity element that's characteristic of human behavior. And so to me that makes the problem deeper than one of mere, let's say, surface statements, surface statements about yeah, yeah. metaphysics. Well, the, the, obviously, the problem of primate aggression, which we've inherited along with the chimps, is deeper or at least different than the problem of religious violence or, or totalitarian uh, okay. po political structures that, that okay, get good. the worst out of people. So, uh, I mean, we have, we have these primate capacities that we have to correct for, and we're busily trying to correct for almost everything that we've been evolved to do. I mean, we're not, we, you know, we, we don't like the state of nature for good reason, and virtually everything that's good about human life is born of our, I would argue, culture-based and, and, you know, highly intelligent and necessary effort to, to mitigate what is in fact natural for us, and I mean, there's nothing more natural than tribal violence, which of the sort that you're, okay. you're okay. describing okay. in chimps. Okay, so so then that it also seems like we agree that the the core element of tribal alliance, which would have its roots, say, in in the chimpanzee 
proclivity to, or its analog in the chimpanzee proclivity to identify with the dominance hierarchy of the troop mm. is something that's a source of the proclivity for human social aggression that's independent of its, at, at least in, independent of any obvious religious substrate. So there are other yeah. reasons for group belief and the commission of atrocity that can't be directly attributed to to religious dogma. Yeah, but, but I mean, and, and what most worries me about religion, I would say, is, I mean, obviously religion can channel these primate urges in unhappy ways. So you, you can get tribal yeah. violence that gets amplified by religious dogmatism, and that should trouble everyone. But it's not unique to religion. It's also nationalism, and it's racism, and it's all other kinds of dogmatism. But what most worries me are those cases where clearly good people who are not necessarily captured by tribalism, per se, uh, are doing the unthinkable based purely on religious doctrines that they believe wholeheartedly with, without good evidence. So you have the person who joins ISIS who, who wasn't even Muslim before they converted you know, 16 months ago, and they go all the way down the rabbit hole to the the most doctrinaire, most committed, most uncompromising view of just how you have to live in this world if you're going to be Muslim. Uh, and they join ISIS based on the idea that salvation only goes one way and that dying in defense of the one true faith is the, the best thing that can happen to you. There's no question that there are individuals who have made that journey. In fact, there are individuals by the thousands who have made that journey. And there are far more benign versions of that. There are people who just waste their lives, I would argue, converting to whatever the belief system is and just wasting a lot of time worrying about hell or worrying about the fact that their child is gay and the, the, you know, the creator of the universe doesn't approve of that. Uh, and so there are all, all kinds of suffering that strike me as truly unnecessary, born not of, again, ape-like urges, but ideas that any rational person would, if believed, would, fo would follow to the, that same terminus. All right, so why did I share that clip? What does that clip have to do with anything that Anthony was saying? What does it have to do with differentiation, of thinking that different things are of the devil? Well, here's, here's how I see it. Here's what I think is going on. I, I, I think that we evolved to... Um, really reinforce the safety in our own groups and to protect ourselves from outsiders because there was danger. Our brains told us through repeated experience over and over and over and over. Oh, the great Oz has spoken. Oh, pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. The great Oz has spoken. Who are you? Oh, I, I, I am the great and powerful Wizard of Oz. You are? Uh, I yes. don't believe you. No, I'm afraid it's true. There's no other wizard except me. 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 Oh, welcome back to Infant Nursery Hour. You want someone to preach to you? With your host, Glenn Osler. You want religion, do you? It's sharing time. There will be many willing to preach to you the philosophies of men mingled with humor. Yeah. You can buy anything in this world. Uh-huh. All right. Welcome back to Infants on Thrones, where there's no other wizard except you. This is part two of my conversation with Anthony Miller, and uh, let's just get right to it, huh? 
So we don't, in, in high demand fundamentalist type faith traditions, we don't tend to do differentiation very well because the narrative is differentiation is, is uh, of the devil, it's conflict, it's, and so forth. And so, but in a lot of other faith traditions, you know, they'll go listen to a sermon and, and a husband and wife can get, sit next to each other and have a totally different take on the sermon. And that's not a painful experience. We're in, in the church, in the LDS church, we're expected pretty much to bear the same testimonies. Um, we're expected to, uh, you know, teach from the same manuals and all have the same experience and the formula needs to work the same for all of us. And if it doesn't, it's because there's something wrong. And, and so to get where you're talking about, um, I think people need to get through stages of grief. Um, just because they go through a faith transition, they don't all of a sudden become comfortable with differentiation or that they are no longer black and white thinkers. So they just keep their black and white thinking and now the church isn't true. And then they're uncomfortable with differentiation of experiences in their relationships. And so for validation themselves, plus just that's how their mind works because they're not comfortable with differentiation. They feel like they need to bring other people along with them. Yeah. But, but eventually the healthy way is to, uh, uh, traverse the stages of grief to get to be more comfortable with differentiation to recognize that people have different experiences and then to find ways to engage in healthy ways in shared spiritual languages or 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 shared commonalities that are safe for both people inside and outside uh, the faith tradition so for my wife and i we we've reconciled that um, we experience divinity in service to others and so um, we make conscious efforts to do activities and projects where we're doing service to others because that's our shared spiritual language or our shared elevation emotion language, whatever it is that you want to call it. And one thing that we did in 2018 is we created a GoFundMe. We raised a little bit more than $28,000 and we bought a replacement trailer home for a woman and her 25-year-old disabled daughter uh, that was in a former ward of ours. Hmm. And um, it gave me an opportunity to engage and interact with my LDS friends, many of whom consider me the apostate, capital T, capital A. Yeah. Um, and they contributed financially and they contributed with work and help. And it was a safe thing. We didn't have to sit in Sunday school where I'd raise my hand and make a comment about Jonah not being a, a literal historical story. <laughs> yeah. you know? um, and they could call it ministering and they were excited. And, and we did this really good thing and helped this woman and her daughter. And it was a shared spiritual language for my wife and I. And that, and that was just healthier. Um, and it, that experience did help me increase my capacity to be comfortable with differentiation hmm. so, and, and, and to see, you know, my wife is spiritually fed in her participation in the church, um, in her service. Uh, she's an ordinance worker too. And, and that was very painful during my faith crisis. Uh, but as I healed and moved forward now, I, I actually at, at times can honestly say that I feel inspired by the way that she grows and is filled through her participation. Yeah. 
Right. And if that ever changes, then I'll be here to support her. Yeah. Um, but if it doesn't, then I can support her in doing those things. That's great. That that's that's a really nice place to be. Um, so so you sent me uh, something that you had written. Um, what did you say? You, you you posted it in a in a group that you're a part of. And and what I want to do is I want to I want to read this to you and then just kind of pause at the end of each you know paragraph and and ask you what you mean by it. So the first thing that you say is I do feel and want to be spiritually free. And there and there's two words that I want to focus on in there. And that first one is spiritual. And I think we've kind of talked about it a little bit with with the elevation. But and then so what does it mean to be spiritual? And then what does it mean to be spiritually free? What, what do you mean by that? Yeah, so um, sometimes in our spectrum support group, we, we have discussions about what, what spiritually feeds you, what gives you meaning, value, and purpose in life. And so for someone who is uncomfortable using the word, word spiritual, uh, or what feeds me spiritually or what helps me be spiritually free, I'm fine you know, let's use the words, what gives you meaning, value, and purpose in life? You know, what gives you elevation emotion? But when you're saying free, does that mean that you want to be free of that, that you don't want that elevation? Like what, what is the free part doing? So the, so the free part is, um, is that the, the decision of what those things mean to me and what the mythical constructs are, are something that comes from inside of me. It's my choice. So it's not dictated to me. It's not men who have mantles of discernment that say, this is how you grow spiritually. And if you're not growing spiritually that way, it's wrong. So free is by my choice, by my listening to my own internal voice and conscience. I think that the year I went to EFY, there was a song called Free to Choose. Right. Um, That's what you're saying. You want to be free to choose the mode of spirituality that you're, that feels right to you what and not have that dictated to you. What connects me? So like okay. one of my friends that, that, uh, that I've talked to about what spiritually feeds him, he says, he says he's largely agnostic, but he loves the liturgy of the Episcopalian church. He loves the hymns and where the pastor says something and then the congregation says something else and that everybody's there participating in that experience together that spiritually feeds him. You know, what feeds me is service to others, mourning with those who mourn, comforting those who need comfort, the Matthew uh, 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 stuff, like from the parable of the goats and the sheep to feed the hungry and clothe the naked and visit the sick and, and the imprisoned. Whether it's literally or figuratively, those are the things that spiritually feed me or elevation emotion feed me or give me meaning and value and purpose. And, and the free part is I get to decide what those things are. All right. Got it. All right. The next thing you say is I find it infinitely empowering to ponder the question, what spiritually feeds you in the present? Yeah. So in the past it was dictated. Mm -hmm. It was a particular uh, interpretation of scripture or it was what the brethren said. And it's empowering for me to ponder that myself and be open to the mystery that it could be a different answer tomorrow than it is today. Yeah. And, and then to ask other people, you know, what 
their inner voice, conscious soul experience tells them uh, and, and and hear what their journey and story is. Yeah, and and that's the that's the tricky part of how how do you how do you accept someone else's mode of spiritual feeding when it uh, ruffles your feathers or what you know like it just doesn't seem because that. Uh, so much of that, I think, so much of the way that people find spiritual fulfillment, and that's the connection with others, is culturally determined. And when that when that's formed in a culture that you're not familiar with, there can be some really, really strange, weird things, like people getting a lot of tattoos or piercings, or you know, like just just these cultural things, clothes that they wear, food that they eat, or dancing that they do, or you know, things yeah. that are strange. How? Yeah. What's your experience yeah, so, with that? Well, um, probably one of the most significant gifts of my faith crisis is um, I never felt that I was better than anyone else. I never mm. felt, you know, I, I tried to reject the narrative that uh, of choice, chosen, or favored people of God, but that was the underlying belief. And when I lost that belief, what it had the effect of doing is elevating the, the, the treasured value and worthiness of an individual story of everyone. Mm-hmm. It was like I had this intense increase of sense of connection. I could be at a restaurant and a server would walk up to me, you know, all tatted up or whatever the case might be, where before I might have thought, well, you're, you know, you're working and you're on your way, you know, you can get there. Like I have some secret knowledge that I can give you kind of thing to where I could see that person is just a treasured gift of existence and just their infinite value, I guess I could say, just got elevated. And so, so that increased my capacity to have a comfort level of differentiation of what people's answers would be. Mm-hmm. Um, outside of my faith tradition, past faith tradition. But it wasn't until I processed the wounding of leaving Mormonism and my faith transition where I could begin to feel that uh, that could be a worthy story or answer in what wounded me in the past. Hmm. So it took time. Yeah. Okay. The next, the next thing that you wrote here, I think, I think we've kind of covered, um, you say it, it isn't about what's prescribed to me by men who falsely claim mantles of discernment and exclusive divine authority. It isn't about literalism of the stories and myths in scripture or a dictated, uh, interpretation of what they mean. It's about me pondering the mysteries and listening to my own inner voice of what feeds me, what connects me to humanity and the universe and to explore what will increase that interconnection and bring me peace and stretching growth today. Now that, that sounds a little bit to me like somebody who's tried psychedelics. <laughs> uh, I won't comment on that. All right. Okay. Uh, but um, yeah, so um, <laughs> cer- certainly, so I'll parse it in, um, uh, you know, people like uh, Thomas McConkie or Gina Colvin or mm-hmm. or others that uh, are, are comfortable using the word God and mystery and divinity and so forth, they they talk about the mystery of God and yeah. and 
And I'm comfortable using some of that language now where for a period of time I was not. And, and um, I just, I want to be able to meditate or go on a walk or a hike and just ponder myself. What are the things that are going to feed me? And, and like I mentioned before, one of the most painful parts of my crashed shelves was realizing that I shelved my inner voice and conscience. I, yeah. I suppressed my inner voice and conscience out of obedience. And, and, and that was probably the most severe betrayal of my experience. Yeah. Talk to me more about this inner voice. What, what is the difference between just you and your thoughts and your inner voice? Is there a difference? What, what is the inner voice for you? Inner voice. Um, so I, I would differentiate it from your scripted voice. Oh, who talked about the scripted voice? There were two, there was somebody that talked about two different voices and I can't remember, uh, what book that was, but in any event, it's not the scripted voice where you should do this or you should do that, or this is what success means or anything like that. It's listening to this is what helps me feel connected. This is what gives me meaning, value, and purpose in life. This is what enriches relationships. This is what brings me peace. And, and, then, and then pondering and listening to what those answers might be myself. So I don't know if that is specific enough. Um, but Well, I, I mean... Yeah, I, I just, I, I have my own sense of what inner voice means. And so I'm just kind of quietly keeping that to, to myself while I'm and comparing it to what you're saying. <laughs> so, so when the exclusion policy came out, yeah, uh, my inner voice said that that's not from God. Yeah. You know, that children would be socially classified as less than because their parents were gay mm -hmm. and then to expect that even though I can support gay marriage as a, a, a temple recommend holding member of the church, that those children, when they turn 18 years old, they can't have the same choice as I do to support gay marriage. And they have to disavow their parents' relationship. And, and in, in my, my inner voice, told me that that is not right. So I don't know if you know if it's conscience or what it is, but that's what I'm referring to. Okay, all right, really quickly, let me illustrate using sound what I think the inner voice is for me. Now we've got a lot going inside of our heads, right? We're constantly scanning the world around us for signs of danger. And there can often be alarms going off that stress us out, that put us in our fight or flight mode and biochemically narrow our ability to focus on wider things. We narrow our focus. And then there's also these constant nagging doubts. Our inner critical voices, our biases, both conscious and unconscious that we carry around. Oh, that guy looks kind of freaky. And all of these things, all of this noise can get so overwhelming to the point where our inner Inara George from The Bird and the Bee will start to sing. I must empty out my skull of all this 
And if we can somehow find a way to turn down that noise, to get that empty head, and to focus on what our entire nervous system is telling us, that's where I think I find my inner voice. So that's what I was thinking of as I was listening to Anthony talk about this. So I don't know if you know if it's conscience or what it is, but that's what I'm referring to. Yeah, and and again, you know, I mean, there, there's different things that that idea is called in different groups and cultures. You know, you've got the Jiminy Cricket character in Pinocchio that plays that role as right. a conscience. Um, you, you've got uh, the still small voice, you know, the spirit whispers this to me, you know, and right. tells me this, you know, that, that, that right. Mormons talk about, um, you know, there, there's other traditions that talk about uh, what an inner voice is. Um, and maybe some of my inner voice, uh, you know, was part of what I perceived as revelation or inspiration in the example that I gave teaching a Sunday school class, having compassion for members of the class and trying to listen to or perceive, you know, what would be of value and meaning to yeah. other people, not necessarily what's scripted. I, I, I guess I, I have, I have a theory and I don't even know how testable this is or how accurate it might even be, but in, in defining what the ego is, and I, I've talked about this on previous episodes, I, I, a, a lot of the way that I think about the ego has been influenced by Alan Watts and other people like Alan Watts that I've listened to, where um, the, the ego is basically that, that those functions of our brain that make us aware of the world around us, like a radar on a ship. Okay. Um, you know, the, so anything that we see, hear, you know, feel, taste, touch, and there's certain responses that we have to that that uh, are instinctive responses to keep us safe. And, we, you know, we've evolved with these very, very strong egos to keep us strong and safe in the world. But, it, but, but, the, but that, that radar doesn't grow our hair or make our eyes the color that they are. It doesn't beat our hearts for us. It doesn't keep our hormones balanced. You know, that, that there, those things are happening. Our body's doing that, but it's, it's, it's separate. It's outside of that radar. We're, we, we don't feel the cells moving around inside of us. We're not aware, you know, you know we, we, scientifically, there's tools you can look at and, and know that our cells are communicating with each other. There's uh, electric signals and chemicals that go back and forth and they communicate. But, but our ego, our radar system isn't aware of that. That's outside of our awareness. So I've started thinking of the inner self as being outside of that awareness. You know, like th that part of our biology that's tuned into itself and probably other influences in the environment around us that are outside of that radar system and that that's kind of the inner voice. But I don't really know what to do with that. I like the idea. Yeah. I don't think that it's a dualist idea. I still think it's kind of like based on our biology. Yeah. But um, anyway. So what we're, I, I try to use the words, uh, it, it's helpful for me or it works for me as mm -hmm. opposed to right or wrong, sure. or, you know, true or false at this point. 
And, and one thing that works for me with regard to this kind of a topic uh, is it, the Secular Buddhism podcasts have been really helpful for me uh, as they relate to these kinds of things. Uh, meditation has been helpful for me. You know, just, just going on a hike and pondering and so forth has been helpful for me. But I think, I think it would be helpful for me to be able to articulate uh, with greater clarity, what I mean by inner voice, because I also would say that um, my sense of divinity or connection or whatever at this point is that I trust that um, if people are following their inner voice, not scripted from other places, but just what they feel inside, uh, maybe if they're self-actualized uh, inner voice, is that I is that I have a greater sense of trusting their journey, and so if if Mike Norton's inner voice tells him to do what he does, and Bill Reel's inner voice tells him what you know to do what he does, and if Terrell and Fiona Gibbons' inner voice tell them what to do, um, Boyd K. Uh, Packer's it, inner voice uh, maybe not uh, because that, I think that's more of a scripted voice. I, I don't think that he's you know that he would have thought outside of the box. But I, I, I would trust if there's divinity in this, if there's a divine design in this, um, it, it's going to be actualized um, when people are listening to their uh, inner voice and continually being open to seeking, you know, truth and goodness and peace and elevation emotion, you know. All right. All right. So we'll, we'll put a pin on inner voice. We haven't, we haven't quite figured out what that is yet, but we right. know that there's something, there's something going on that, Right. Is is a value. You know? I think so. That's inherently good. And it's tied it's tied to integrity and yeah. yeah. Love. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. And you continue in what you wrote. Um to get there, I had to completely deconstruct and reconstruct what all this stuff means to me. And I had to increase my capacity to be at peace with the ambiguities and the current and ongoing evolution of what it all means to me. Yeah. Yeah, so um, human beings, we want to be certain. Uh, we want certainty. We want, you know, I'm a financial planner and I've been a college professor. And so my job is to figure out the highest probability of success, you know, for my clients, you know, mm -hmm. and, and teach economics and things, you know, how things work. Um, so it's a totally different experience to just to be at peace with the recognition that it's just really ambiguous and what I decide works for me today might be different than what works for me tomorrow and just to be totally at peace with that. So there's probably a Buddhist, uh, you know, construct that, that works with that too. So with the, with the, uh, with, with the government shutdown and all the things going on in, in the country over the last couple of years, or do you think we're heading for a massive financial crisis? Um, so there's a, there's a quote that's attributed to Winston Churchill that who knows whether he said it, but he supposedly he said, we can always count on the Americans to do the right thing after they have exhausted all the alternatives. <laughs> and, um, and, and my sense, you know, big picture, we're at, you know, a turning point in humanity that's similar to the turning point of the printing press. And, mm. and that has to do with the advent of the kinds of technologies we have today. Sure. And that 20, 30 years from now, uh, AI, robotics, 
um, technology, globalization, and so forth, they're going to make so many changes that it's going to scare the crap out of people. And I think that what we're doing right now, similar to the church, kind of seemingly to uh, devolve into small f fundamentalism to deal with what's happening these days. I, th I think that a lot of developed countries are kind of closing in on each other uh, with nationalism. Um, and I think that we see that in the developed world. And, and so that's what I see going on right now. My, my perception is the best run companies in the world are going to figure out how to navigate all this. Um, that as human beings, we'll figure it out going forward. And, um, and so, uh, you know, historically, as human beings, we get over-optimistic and over-pessimistic. And yeah. there's always reasons that are compelling for both. And I think that's where we're at right now. Is it, is it worthwhile to do financial planning in this kind of environment? Oh, it's or, even, or is it it's even it's, more important? It's, it's not just all going to crash? No, it's not all going to crash. Okay. No. Yeah. All right. Well, then, then we'll need to talk off air because I'm terrible at it. I'm okay. absolutely horrible at it. Okay. Um, Sounds good. Okay. Um, so then, then uh, the rest of what you write, you're, you're summarizing the books that we talked about earlier. Yeah. You say that the book Sapiens offered me a satisfying answer of how and why religious myths are developed and used. Yeah. And uh, what, what was that answer? What, 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 how did that change things for you, the book Sapiens? Um, it, it just helped me understand how myths come about, like the myth of money. You know, money currency is an abstract myth that represents an exchange of value. Um, but as societies, we couldn't function the way that we do today without the myth of currency. Why do you, why do you call it a myth? Uh, well, it's it, real. I mean, I can hold the dollar bill in my hand. That's real. Why, why are you calling that a myth? Uh, well, it's a myth because uh, communities and societies assign uh, a value to that. So that $100 bill is worth one hour or 10 hours of work or it's worth, you know, whatever you can buy at Costco with it. Um, but it, so, so it's a, a construct that human beings have accepted um, to classify an exchange of value. And in order for groups of larger than, was it, was it 150 or so to function, they need to have uh, myths, um, not meaning that they're not true, but, but they're, that they're a, a, a construct or a story that's accepted um, so that we can function together. You know, n countries and nations are, are a myth too. Sure. So af after September 11th, like all of a sudden, uh, Democrats and Republicans and even, you know, uh, people that were far, far left and far, far right. We all became Americans when September 11th happened. But the idea that Americans are different than any other human beings uh, on the planet is, is it's a myth construct that makes our country work kind of thing. So anyway, those are two examples of myths. So myths were necessary as part of social evolution and religious myths were extremely important because uh, as, as human beings, we uh, perceive that we are greater than our biological self. And 
So there needed to be stories to classify or communicate those experiences. And then over time, the myth traditions or the stories that give us meaning and connection um, tend to get co-opted with patriarchy and sexism and racism and power and money and things like that. So it just helped me to understand where the sources of religious stories and traditions might have come from and why they, they were part of the evolutionary process. So I needed to understand the why. Yeah. Why, why the Jehovah myth? Why the Christian myth uh, or story, I guess? Why, uh, you know, my construct in Mormonism is that Joseph Smith believed in the literal historicity of the Bible of Freemasonry narratives uh, and some of the Jewish occult narratives. And so his experience or perception of, of how things work was influenced by that. And what he created was based on his perception of the literal historicity of those stories or, or, or myth traditions. I needed to understand or have some sort of reconciliation as to where that came from. Yeah. Okay. All right. And then, then you go on to the book, uh, God, a human history offered me a satisfying answer of how and why the religious myths of my tribe and ancestors came about. And you're kind of touching on that with the Joseph Smith stuff that you just said. Yeah. So Reza Aslan in that book goes through human history all the way back to the Neanderthals and talks about and explains how different religious uh, myth traditions came about and what God or divinity meant. So um, sometimes there was monotheism, sometimes there were different competing gods, sometimes there were competing gods and my God was better than your God. And he explains um, how the Yahweh myth or the Jehovah myth came about. Uh, and then he explains the offshoots of that story or myth tradition of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Um, and then at the end of the book, he, he does have a chapter that feels pretty didactic, but, but um, it actually is pretty helpful, at least it was to me, where he talks about pantheism. So the, the premise of pantheism is this idea that there's not necessarily an interventionist creator God being, but that God is uh, represented in kind of an omnipresent force that exists everywhere. And as a result, you're part of God, and I'm part of God, and the moon is part of God. It's just a divine design, omnipresent type of force um, that we participate in. And his premise in the book is, is that progressive movements in Islam or progressive Christianity tend to drift towards pantheism in a belief system. Um, and that pantheism is actually kind of a return to what human beings believed about God and divinity uh, among our ancestors mm. before we humanized God. And um, so that was really helpful for me to, to say, okay, well, I'm pretty agnostic about a lot of things, border on atheist in some things, but I do sense 
some sort of meaning, purpose, and value, and spiritual connection, whether or not my consciousness remains after I die, um, and how that all fits, and how how that historically in in humankind uh, got developed into different humanizing uh, descriptions of divinity and our relationships with divinity. Um, it was just really interesting in that book. What, what did you mean when you said he was didactic? Uh, so so um, Reza Aslan uh, was a Muslim, what, believed in Islam, converted to evangelical Christianity, realized that they were very anti-LGBT, went back to Islam, and now he practices as a, as a, I think it's a Sufi Islam, which is a very progressive Islam. So as Rob Bell and Richard Rohr are to Christianity, um, the Sufi or Sufi Islamists are to Islam. And, um, and so what he does is he explains all these different evolution of myth traditions or stories or the humanization of God and, and so forth. And then the didactic, what I, the reason I call it didactic. Wait, is what does didactic mean? Uh, he's telling you, this is how it is. Oh, okay. All right. Gotcha. Uh, and so he's saying at the end, this is my reconciliation. My mm -hmm. reconciliation is pantheism. And this is why I believe that pantheism is where, religious and spiritual traditions are all headed. Mm -hmm. um, and in the past, we, our ancestors humanized God to make it more relatable. But now as we become more self-actualized, we're coming to the realization that those are brittle constructs. Mm -hmm. and, and this sense of that we're part of something that has meaning and purpose that will still be here four billion years from now. Um, but that's not necessarily an interventionist creator God. That's kind of, I think Richard Dawkins called pantheism sexed up atheism. Yeah, it was Richard Dawkins. <laughs> sexed up atheism? A a atheism, because pantheism is saying there's not a God to go worship. But the, the, you know, you're wearing a Star Wars shirt. Yeah. Yes, I am. Uh, but that God is, is a force. Yeah. And it's omnipresent. It's everywhere, which means we're part of it. And good and evil exists right. within us. Yeah. And to the extent that there's intervention, it's what we're doing to intervene. Uh, that, that's basically what pantheism. So Richard Dawkins would say, well, that's atheism because there's not a God being or entity that you're worshiping or mm -hmm. that cares about tattoos or exposed women's shoulders or something right. like that. So, so then the, the, in reading this book, did that, did that, and I want to be careful how I say it, but did, did it, I'll just say it how I'm thinking it, did it move you from that atheist agnostic place to a place that was more pantheistic where you were accepting of that more, or you just were able to understand and appreciate that other people could be, but that's not really where you were. So in, at some point in the future, are you going to share the Dow email that you sent me? I, well, yeah, I mean, at some point, um, I, I'm, I'm going to do another podcast called The Tao of Tao, okay. and that's going to be an episode on that. But, so, but you can so, talk about it if you want to talk about it. So that email is very close to, very much approximates pantheism. Sure, yeah. yeah. And, and I, didn't, uh, I didn't know, I didn't have a construct of the Tao or of pantheism. Mm -hmm. And so 
um, understanding where religious traditions and stories and myths and the humanization of God came from, but then also having a construct of pantheism or very similar to what you wrote in the Tao email, um, gave me a construct that I could sit with in comfort. And before I read that book, I was not comfortable using the word God again. Yeah, right. Yeah. And after that book, uh, it increased my comfort level of having a different construct of what God means. I'm, st- I'm still not comfortable using, yeah, I like saying it out loud, but yeah. thinking it because I yeah. know what I mean by it now. And, and I'm feeling more of like that panty, but I, but yeah. I also feel, I, I mean, it's interesting to hear that, that Dawkins called it sexed up atheism yeah because i do feel like it's it's uh it's very very similar to atheism but it's also weird it, it, so i'm still not completely comfortable with it but i get it and i kind of like it so well you, know, you can like, call it Tao then don't sure, call it right Dao, yeah call yeah it whatever Dao. you call it whatever yeah. symbol pick your own symbol yeah one of my friends uh uh likes Taoism mm-hmm. and and calls it the way. Yeah. Well, that's my name. My, so, so my name is Dow Glenn Osland. Okay. And that's why I love the whole, Oh, okay. So, so if I, so I, you know, in thinking about doing a podcast called the Dow of Dow is just like, this is how I'm seeing things now. This is the way that I see things, you know, the Dow of Dow kind of thing. And like, oh, I, 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 I think you would enjoy Reza Osland's book then. Okay. Yeah. I, and, and with all of these things, like I, I'm very conflicted when I read these. I'm like beating myself up the different parts of myself that are like, Oh, that's stupid. Oh no, that's great. You know, anyway, I I just go through that whole process as I go through that stuff. But, but you're curious because you wouldn't have studied folklore. Sure. Curious as to how things work and how stories are developed. Yeah. And, and, and I, I try to be self-critical of my own self-critic and, <laughs> you know, for whatever that's worth, that just ties me up in knots most of the time. Okay. Uh, so, so what you say next um, is the book, Finding God in the Waves, which I hadn't heard about until uh, this from you, uh, gave me satisfying answers to perceive what truth might really mean, how to perceive truths in scriptures and in religious uh, myths, stories, traditions, and a sense of permission to develop my own constructs constructs of what does and doesn't work for me or what I might find helpful at the present to sense a connection with spirituality and divinity. So have you ever listened to the liturgists podcast? I have a couple of episodes. Yeah. So Mark Hargue, uh, I think that's his name. Science Mike. Mm, Okay. wrote, Wrote finding God in the waves. Oh, okay. And so if you listened to the I think it's the lost and found episodes. It's one of the early liturgist podcast episodes mm-hmm. where they talk about faith crisis and losing God and so forth. Um, uh, his, he tells that story in finding God in the waves. So a couple things in finding God in the waves. Um, he, he shares, for example, the story of Van Gogh. So uh, Van Gogh was a very religious believer that wanted to uh, be in the clergy. But um, uh, every time he tried, they wouldn't let him in. And so he finally was able to be like a teacher of a congregation or something like that. Um, But he would live in a haystack. And every time the congregation would give him money, he would give it away to the poor. So, So he was just this mess that felt, smelled, you know, awful, pretty ripe probably, and like hay and so forth. So eventually they said, you can't, you can't teach or preach in our congregation anymore. So his brother said, well, why don't you paint? 
And, and so when we think of Van Gogh, uh, certainly he had mental illness and some other things, but um, he, uh, the Starry Night is a beautiful painting from Van Gogh. Too bad I'm not wearing my Star Wars Starry Night shirt because I've got one of those. There you like go. I said, it's, it's got the Death Star and a right. Stormtrooper and the Starry yeah. Night all across it. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah, so in the Starry Night, um, there's a town and the, the, uh, in, the, in the painting and all the uh, windows in the church at the top of the hill are dark. So the lightness is is not in the church, but it's in the city. Oh, interesting. Yeah. It's a detail I've never noticed in that. So it, it, yeah. So if you yeah. listen to or read that book, you know, he'll talk about that. Mm. So Mark Har Har or Science Mike says, so is the starry night true? And he's like, well, that's kind of a nonsense question to ask. But is there truth and beauty in the starry night? Well, yes, there is. He's like, it's crazy for us to talk about the Bible as being true when the Bible is like the starry night. Yeah. The Bible, are, it constitutes humans' stories yeah. or mythical constructs that represent what they believe is truth. And there's truth in it the way that there's truth in the starry night, mm -hmm. not that it's literal history or whatnot. And so he had chapters in there where he, where he talked about how he views scriptures, not as literal history, but like the starry night, yeah. like human beings expressing their own constructs uh, and stories and myths and understandings of connection yeah. and divinity. It's a, it's a very specific type of art form, uh, you know, of, yeah. of expression. And, yeah. you know, and, and even when, when you think about those artists that will defecate and then make art out of their own shit, you know, right. like, yeah. like, Oh, can there be any value in that? Well, what is it's beauties in the eye of the beholder? If, if you are staring at that and your inner voice interprets it in certain ways, who's, who can discount that it's had, it's created meaning for you, whether yeah. the guy, whether the artist meant it or not, whether it's made out of shit or whatever it is. Right. If it, connect, if it connects to them and they yeah. see or perceive some sort of truth or message or emotion to it, then that's what... And, and then once you get larger, larger and larger groups of people who are connecting it in, in certain ways, it becomes currency. And it, it is very... It, it, it's like we were talking about the money earlier. Yeah. It, it, what, what is it that gives this thing its power? It's everybody's shared agreement that this is how we're going to interpret what this symbol means. Yeah. And, and then, there's a and real strong social value in everybody going, okay, well then that's all fall in line. And, and then it gets co-opted by patriarchy and money and power and yeah. sexism. And well, the, 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 the personalities in those groups that are looking to take advantage of other people and they go, Oh, here's how I can do it. Right. Yeah. yeah. Look, look to me. I have mantles of discernment. Sure. So, yeah. All right. So, so you, you finish this off, just basically you say it took some time and work and it still does. And you talk about some of the painful uh, parts of going through the stage of faith that I think we talked about in the beginning yeah. of this. Um, and, and you conclude it by saying that you do feel free now yeah, uh, and that you're even to the point where you're grateful for the last 33 months since your shelf broke um, yeah. and with an almost spiritual violence and trauma crashed. It, it, it was a spiritually violent, acute existential faith crisis. Yeah. And, 
and I had to mourn and I had to process stages of grief and over time things shifted uh, in me. And now I'm experiencing a sense of meaning and connection that I don't think that I could have ever perceived under my past uh, yeah. constructs. Yeah. So I, I don't, I don't know when this is going to be published, but, but just to give it a frame of, of reference for when people are listening to this, there was a, a commercial that came out. When did the Gillette commercial come out? Was it like a couple days ago, a couple days ago. Yeah. And, and I've, I've seen, I've seen it mentioned. I've seen that there's some controversy around it. It wasn't until earlier today on Facebook, you posted something about it um, that I went, okay, I'm going to go and I'm going to watch it. And I had my response to it, but, but I thought maybe we could end today just by (laughs) talking about um, your, your, your response to that Gillette, commercial. And then I'm curious if the response that you have now, if you think that has been impacted by this faith crisis, if, if the Anthony um, 33 or 34 months ago, having seen that Gillette commercial would have responded any different than the Anthony today with it. Bullying. The Me Too movement against sexual harassment. Is this the best a man can get? Is it? We can't hide from it. It's been going on far too long. We can't laugh it off. Who's the daddy? What I actually think she's trying to say. Making the same old excuses. Boys will be boys. Boys will be boys. Boys will be boys. But something finally changed. Allegations regarding sexual assault and sexual harassment. And there will be no going back. Because we, we believe in the best in men. Men need to hold other men accountable. Smile, sweetie. Come on. To say the right thing. To act the right way. Not cool. Not cool. Some already are. In ways big and small. I am strong. I am strong. But some is not enough. It's not how we treat each other, okay? Okay. Because the boys watching today will be the men of tomorrow. So the, the main idea of the Gillette commercial is, uh, well, first of all, companies that are in marketing, their job is to increase name recognition and sales. Sure, yeah. And if they can produce something that goes viral, um, then it's like a huge return on investment. And so um, that's what's happening here is there's a story that's supposedly, or a commercial that's presenting a narrative of what I wrote, don't be a dick, uh, push back against other people who are being dicks and be an example to youth of what it means to not be a dick is what I perceive as the message. Um, But it's creating all this controversy. So it's viral on YouTube. It's viral on, on social media. um, It's being talked about in the news and what's controversial about it is is uh, in the commercial, they use the words toxic masculinity and they use, uh, they refer to the Me Too movement. And, um, and 
excuse me, for some people, when those words are used, um, as they experience or filter those words through their own constructs, they have very disparate perceptions or reactions to that information. So some people watched this commercial and they were inspired by it because it's about acts of moral goodness, like stopping bullying and yeah. not abusing women and not right. being boorish. And they yeah. watched this commercial and they're totally inspired by it. Some people even say it's like, I felt the spirit watching sure. this, you know, less than two minute commercial. And then on the other end of the spectrum, um, they're perceiving it as saying that masculinity is evil and, um, and we need to emasculate men and, you know, all men are dicks or something like that um, because of where they're, they have their constructs, narratives, myths, and stories coming from is that it represents something totally different just because of the language they use. So like, is it, is it their inner voices that are telling them that? No, I, 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 uh, I wouldn't say that. <laughs> I, I would, I would say, I would say, and interestingly enough, as a side note, uh, this afternoon, my wife and I went and saw, um, the Ruth Bader Ginsburg movie. Oh yeah. Yeah. I saw that recently. And it was amazing. Yeah. I loved it. But some yeah. people would have seen that same movie and had a totally different experience. Sure. Because in the movie, the narrative is, is if you elevate women, you're going to put, you're going to hurt men, right? Uh, if you elevate women and have them equal, it's going to hurt men. Men aren't going to, their wages are going to go down. They're not going to be able to provide for their family, you know, Wow. I didn't see that in that movie at all, but yeah, sure. So some people could, I guess. Some, yeah. yeah. And yeah. so it's similar to the narrative uh, that's anti same sex marriage that somehow my neighbors who are gay getting married yeah. diminishes the value of my marriage. Somehow. Right. Yeah. So in their mythical construct uh, or, or their belief system, their stories, maybe myth is a triggering word for them. Um, it's a negative thing. And so What's so interesting about this commercial is some people are just super angry about it yeah. because to them, um, using the words toxic masculinity is trying to, is, is some sort of political social justice warrior trigger words like white privilege. Sure. Uh, the attack on straight white Christian mm -hmm. males who control mm -hmm. everything pretty much by majority, but supposedly they're being attacked, you know, on all sides. Um, that, that there's this idea that this commercial is. It's confirmation bias the way that you defined it at the beginning of our yeah, conversation. Yeah. They're driving white Chevy Impala. So <laughs> right. that's all they can see on the road. Right. So yeah. This, when this uh, commercial comes out, all they can see is that this is anti uh, men ask anti-masculinity. Yeah, or, or, or whatever position they've taken in the culture wars that have been brewing for, yeah. for decades, they see yeah. this as a big shot from the liberal side. And oh, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's very politicized, I think. So I, have, I have friends that watch the same thing that have completely tail ends of the spectrum reaction to that commercial 
it's inspiring and they're feeling the elevation emotion or the spirit or something like that. And then people on the other end of the spectrum are just livid over it and totally disgusted because uh, the words or what's being represented. And I don't think my friends who think that it's an awful commercial, you know, propose that it's good to bully or be uh, boorish or to women. I don't think that at all, but the, their reaction to it as it's filtered through their pre-programmed scripted language um, and, and stories and constructs is extremely offensive to them. It's did you see the, the Burger King did one, um, I don't know, a couple of months ago, maybe. I, I posted it on Facebook because I really liked it. It was about bullying, you know, an anti-bullying uh-huh. yeah. message yeah. where they, they set up in, in a store these kids bullying another kid and they were, you know, filming people as they're like watching it and not responding and not doing anything. And then they, they would go in and they would like bully the hamburger that they were giving to people, you know? So when the people right. get the hamburger, it's like just right. a mask cause it's been punched up and right. they responded to that. They responded to the, you know, but then, it, but then at the end it showed the people who did intervene and did go over and try and stop these cases of bullying. And, and that was another one that I thought, good on Burger King, you know, you're going to do a commercial, you're spending all this money to promote yourself, it, it, you know, do it with a good message that is really saying that this is, this is the world that we would like to live in. And then people watching it, responding can make a choice. Is this the world you want to, is this how you see it or not? Um, but, but, but with this Gillette one, it really is touching on these cases. I mean, with, with um, the alt-right and yeah. there, there's, there's this concern about, uh, you know, like racism and building a wall and keeping out, yeah. you know, minorities and just, yeah. uh, yeah, that, that's kind of a culture that we're in. It, it, it struck a nerve. Yeah. So, last year there was the Heineken, uh, commercial last year where they get these people together that they show before that they're like polar opposites. Like one's like, uh, a super manly man and, and, and then there's a woman that's like a feminist uh, rights advocate, crash the patriarchy type of person, that they put them in a room and they're supposed to build something together and they get oh, to know yeah. each other. And then they show each other videos of each other. And, okay, and, they, and they don't tell each other ahead of time how right. different they are from each other, right? They just yeah. solve this problem together. Yeah. Yeah, I saw then, that one. Yeah, and then they all, they all stay and have a beer together. Right? Yeah. So people people's reaction to that commercial was pretty similar, I think, to mm, this the, Gillette. The, the, oh, really? Beca- huh. Because um, it, it was like, though your companies, you shouldn't be like trying to dictate to me what my morals are going to be and stuff like that. But in the end, from a, just a marketing standpoint. If As you, if they aren't doing that anyway, you are incomplete unless you buy our product. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> our product will make you happier than you right, are now. Yeah, yeah, you'll be a better man. <laughs> yeah. Drink Heineken, you know, yeah. or, or more. The Gillette. best a man can get with Gillette, you know. With Gillette, yeah, yeah. So th- th- this whole thing is super interesting because it goes to – how individuals can look at the very same information and filter it through their own scripted constructs that they Mm -hmm. have. Yeah, it's super interesting. Cool. Awesome. Well, uh, thanks for coming on and having this conversation, Anthony. It's been enjoyable, a nice way to spend an evening. I appreciate it. I enjoy this more than just sitting around watching the same TV shows over and over again on Netflix, which is (laughs) (laughs) where otherwise happens. All right. Well, thanks for coming on. 
All right, Anthony mentioned an email that I sent to him. So in, at some point in the future, are you gonna share the Dow email that you sent me? I am Dow. I am with you and I am you. I have been with you in every high and in every low. I push you and I drive you. Everything that you see or hear or feel or taste or smell in your life was created by me for me. Which is also to say by you for you. I am your heart and your lungs and your brain. I'm every neuron in your body. I'm every neuron everywhere. I'm every diversified atom in every molecule that ever has or ever will exist. But most of all, I am a metaphor representing the oneness of all. And I'm an invitation for you to explore the limits of your awareness and understanding, to push against and struggle with and question what is real. Because that is who I am. That is what I do. And it is what the Tao that is in you and that is you also wants in return. Which is why you write. All right, there's, uh, there, there's more to that interview, and uh, you know, I cut the endings short on this a little bit. Um, but if you want to hear more of what I had to say on that, it's available on Patreon. Now, I want to play a couple of clips for you here, some other things that are on Patreon that I think are really fun and interesting. And the first one, we'll do a couple of minutes of this. Um, the Brother Jake. Smackdown of Jeremy Goff was just so much fun. And, and Tom was on that as well. And then we had some other Patreon supporters join us for it. But it just was so much fun. So the, the Patreon-only content on Patreon is called Sharing Time. So I've got like Sharing Time. This is episode 27. Sharing Time 27. If you're ever on Patreon, you want to find it. Jeremy Goff, panel Smackdown featuring Brother Jake. It's Sharing Time. Um, I'd like to welcome everybody out to... Uh... <laughs> The, the quorum tonight. Uh, really happy to have all your happy smiling faces here. And uh, we're here for some Jeremy Goff smacking down. Jake, have, have, how much time have you spent with, uh, with Jeremy Goff? Uh, very little, very little. I, he, he is Brother Jake, though. Right? He's kind of a Brother Jake, yeah? <laughs> like, he is the actual guy. Yeah. Just hey, did you hear, uh, here, you know, did you hear to spell some rumors? The, the, the thing is for like, for what it is, which is just a guy, like a 20 something year old, like dispatching from his, the kitchen of his apartment. Like, like yeah, that's exactly what you started off doing. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the reach is like really good. I mean, he's oh, really, you know, right. Well. 30,000. Yeah. It's gonna. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure we both believe in the same biblical Jesus. And they give me a look and like, what do you mean? I'm like, as a Latter-day Saint, we believe in the Jesus Christ in the New Testament. It's the same Jesus that you believe in. We believe that he was born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered on the... Wait, do, but do Mormons really believe that he was born of the Virgin Mary? Well, uh, yeah. I don't, think, I don't think Brigham Young believed that the Virgin Mary was a Virgin Mary. What, what are you talking about? Like that she wasn't a virgin? No, because because Elohim came down in mortal form and fathered Jesus upon Mary. But because he was still God, that kept her a virgin. You see, mm -hmm. it's the kind yeah. of sex the that godly still, penis doesn't yeah, break. That's right. It's more refined matter. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. But, but did, did any of you guys, um, I'm assuming 
you all serve missions, but um, maybe not. Uh, did you guys ever run into this, like the Mormon Jesus thing from oh, sure. Bible Bashers? Because oh, yeah. you were in Illinois, Tom. You must have got this a lot. Oh, yeah. Your Jesus ain't the same as my Jesus. Oh, yeah. All the time. How did you handle it? Did you just say hogwash like Jeremy Goff did? <laughs> and to them, I say hogwash. <laughs> hogwash, good sir. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I guess I pretty much took the same uh, approach that he took, where it's like, well, what are you talking about? We Look, we have, I have the King James Version of the Bible right here. It's the same Jesus that you guys go after, with a little tweaks here and there, because we got the truth and you all don't, but, you know whatever dude <laughs> yeah this 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 debating over who's got the right jesus stuff really just makes me yawn <laughs> you know this it, it is kind of weird though that he's arguing them about whether or not they disagree <laughs> like, isn't the question kind of answered by the fact that he's having this discussion at all yeah yeah it's like we don't have a disagreement I'm going to tell you f- 10 ways why you're wrong about why we don't disagree about something. <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, on, on my other computer, I had pulled up a, I'd, I'd prepared some notes that I don't have in front of me now, but um, <laughs> president Hinckley in a interview actually addressed this and said, yeah, it is a different D- Jesus. He did. What did he, well, what was uh, his specifics? I, I probably right. heard it, but I forgot. I'll look it up. Talk amongst yourselves while I look it up. I like that you got. You, you seem annoyed by the fact that you have to look up the piece of information that you brought up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was just just trust me, just trust me. Like he, he said, said "No, you want to know exactly like, what really? it is." That sounds really interesting and pertinent. And you're like, "Fine, fine, I'll do I it. Had I'll look notes, it up." And now I don't. Uh, where is it? Okay, it's on Fair Mormon. Um, they went and addressed it. Um, let's see. I wonder how like fair Mormon feels about this. About what? They, Goff. Well, just Goff. Oh, Goff. Yeah. I don't know. I was actually wondering what does fair Mormon think about losing their Mormon in their term or in their name? <laughs> the fair <laughs> Church of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints. Yeah. Like they got to change everything now. Um, shit, I can't find it. There we go. All right. This was in LDS Church Newsweek, ending June 20th, 1998, page seven, y'all. And he says, in bearing testimony of Jesus Christ, President Hinckley spoke of those outside. All right. So there's about five minutes worth of uh, an episode that's an hour and 45 minutes long on patreon so uh, that's the that's that and now here's one th- this is one um somebody on patreon asked me to do a smackdown of um some guy i hadn't heard of him before he he gave a it was a general authority that that gave a talk somewhere and and so he he linked the recording to me and so i just um uh, smacked it down all by my lonesome which is a new form of smackdown it's called smack smacksturbation which might make some sense to some of you. Others might be like, I don't understand what that means. That's good. That means you're pure. That means you are pure as the driven snow, just absolutely pure. So here is a a clip of this SmackDown that I did 
It is Sharing Time, episode 37. It's Lawrence Corbridge. Smacksturbation. Right at your fingertips. Get a towelette. Thank you, President Worthen. Oh my God, are we going to talk like this the whole time? To show how reverent and thoughtful and pious we are and how in tune we are with the Spirit of the Lord. Gag. Sister Corbridge and I are honored and so grateful to be with you here today. As part of an assignment I had as a general authority, I needed to read through a great deal of material antagonistic to the Church, the Prophet Joseph Smith, the Book of Mormon, and the Restoration of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Way to go, Lawrence, for taking one for the team. In your assignment as a general authority, to read through antagonistic material from haters. You just immerse yourself in haters so that we wouldn't have to. Thank you. There may not be anything out there that I haven't read. What a load of shit. <laughs> Are you kidding me? What? How long have you been a general authority uh, reading antagonistic material to the church? Come on. It, there's uh, First of all, there's no way you've read as much as me, and I've haven't even scratched the surface of everything that's out there. What a stupid thing to say. What are you trying to accomplish with that, Laurie? Lawrence? Since that assignment changed, I have not returned to wallow in that mire again. Well, at least you wallowed once in the mire, so I'm sure we're going to get a really clear, concise, uh, unbiased, <laughs> and uh, uh, anyway, come on, man. Jeez hyperbole much i mean and this this is like classic poisoning the well poisoning the well poisoning it poisoning the mired wallowing well reading that material always left me with a feeling of gloom yes that feeling is called cognitive dissonance dear sir the feeling of wait a minute This isn't supporting the things that I've been told are true. And I always surround myself with things that support the things that I believe are true. What is this feeling, this existential crisis I'm feeling? Gloomy. Yeah, we've all been through it. And um, yeah, it sucks, man. It absolutely sucks. So, yeah. And one day that sense of darkness inspired me to write a a partial response to all such antagonistic claims. I would like to share with you some of what I recorded that day. And although I wrote it for my own benefit, I hope it may help you as well. I wanted to give a different talk today. I wrote other talks, more entertaining, with more stories, more engaging than this one. But did the Spirit tell you to, like, change directions? Uh, You know, because, like, you had something that you wanted to do, but then God came in and said, uh, no, my good and faithful servant, actually, I want you to go in this direction. And so the people who are listening to this better understand that what you're about to say isn't really coming from you at all. It's coming from God. Uh, So you can kind of, like, put some distance between yourself and any potential impact. I mean, this is God, so they need to listen to God, because who the hell is Elder Lawrence Corbridge, right? Is that what's going on here? But every time I wrote a new one, I came back and I was directed back to this one. Wow, I sure, I sure better pay attention then. 
This is this is coming from the great beyond, the great beyond, the great within. This is this is all right. Well, you know, if my <laughs> if if my new outlook on God is that God is everything, right? Like I said at the intro to that last thing that I did, then this is part of everything. I mean, this is a little this is a little stitch, a little design in the great tapestry of everything that is. So, okay, I'll I'll listen to it. I'll see what it is. And um, yeah, if I'm going to say that God is everything and this is a part of everything, then I can say that this is a part of God because all I mean is just it exists and it is. And uh, let's see what it is on that value. But I can tell <laughs> we, don't, we don't look at it the same way, Elder Corbridge, but that's okay, man. That's okay. I will accept what you are saying as a part of God. <laughs> the prophet Daniel said that in the last days shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. And that kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Actually, I think what Daniel said was something a little bit more like this. I don't know. I mean, I hope that wasn't racist. My point is, he wasn't speaking English. And uh, if he even really existed at all. I mean, maybe he was a character in a story, but that was written in a different language. And then translated into English. And they're having to take, like, symbols uh, in whatever language he spoke, which is just symbols that represent ideas anyway, and then translate that into a different culture with different cultural symbols. All right, I'm going to share one more clip with you. I mean, there's there's many that I could share. There's other Jeremy Goss smackdowns. There's there's things where I share clips from Alan Watts and talk about Alan Watts and the na- nature of consciousness and things like that that I'm learning uh, from him. But this was just so fascinating. So this is Sharing Time, episode 33. I called it the male and female proclamation. And I don't know if, if this got on your radar a couple of weeks ago, but somebody, somebody was created like their own version of the proclamation to the world on the family about uh, male and female gender roles, and it was a response to the temple changes, and they were upset because they see the church going into apostasy because they're softening the language about the way that women should be subservient to men, and it's just this. So, so somebody created this thing. They were passing it out at chapels in Utah. And so I got a hold of it and um, did a little episode on that. So once again, this is Sharing Time, episode 33. I'll share you a couple of minutes from that. Shouldn't the patriarchy humble themselves instead of being affronted when the, the women are given equal griff in the temple? Anyway, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. All right. Next paragraph is... We solemnly proclaim. I want. Is there any other way to proclaim something in these? Like, ten, can you tenderly proclaim something, or um, sillily? Is that a word? Sillily. You can sillily proclaim. Well, they solemnly do it. We seriously proclaim, you guys, that this pattern of humble submission applies to and reflects the eternal nature relationship and order between male and female and between God, husband, and wife. I'm trying to do the princess, bride, man, and wife. Okay, no, never mind. And children, and children. 
Owing to her testimony of, jo- of Jesus' gospel as a humble submission, the faithful sister has no difficulty making and keeping a sacred covenant to heed the direction of her husband, correctly understood as redirected to her earthly father when endowed before marriage. This, this reeks of Mike Tannehill doctrine to me. If you guys remember Mike talking about stuff like this, how any woman always has a man at her head. And it's her father until she's married, and then it's her husband. And, oh, I'm sorry, ladies. I'm sorry about that, ladies. Um, she understands that each are in united, or that each are united in submission. <laughs> and that family units on every order of magnitude require a revelatory head. And only a penis has a head, right? It didn't say that. That's, that's the footnote that I'll put in there. I don't think that a clitoris has a head. I, I mean, maybe. I mean, it's like, like a little teeny tiny penis, but I don't know that it has a... Maybe it is the head. Maybe that's what the clitoris is, the, the head that's just... Anyway. She understands that each are united in submission and that family units <laughs> units on every order of magnitude require a revelatory head. She fears not the head nor his authority. We're telling you that, ladies. Don't be afraid of it. Being joined to the head, whether in marriage to husband or in... They're saying head too much. Or in birth to earthly father as one body. She understands, as does the faithful husband and father that each regards the other as the self each seeking to submit as servant to all so basically what we're describing is a system of inequality where we pretend to be equal so if everyone is equally pretending to be equal even if it's not actually equal that's the way that we want things to be proclamation we solemnly declare it each seeking to submit as a servant to all the husband and father also submitting to both wife and child to the extent their wills harmonize with God's will and assuming his role as revelatory head in all humility and fear of God. All right, there's more. Next paragraph. We declare, we do declare the Holy Ghost bearing witness that this order among male and female husband, wife, and children, is eternal and unchanging, just as the elements are eternal, and just as God would cease to be God if the works of justice could be destroyed. So likewise, there exists no power to alter the nature of male and female, masculine and feminine, nor the eternal order resulting therefrom. You know, um... When you, when you look at the things that we're made up of, you know, because this is my big kick recently, right? The, the cells in our body. I don't think you've got male and female cells. I don't think you've got male and female atoms. You've got up and down quarks. <laughs> but I don't think that's the same thing as gender being eternal because we're made out of both of them. You don't just have men being made out of up quarks, you know, because... Like an erect penis. Or women being made out of down quarks. You know, because then, like, when they 
anyway. Um, <clears throat> so just the, the God would cease to be God if the works of justice could be destroyed. So likewise, there exists no power to alter the nature of male and female, blah, 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 blah. We reverently further declare, now they're getting all reverent. They've been solemn, now they're getting reverent. The spirit bearing witness that this order extends to the highest magnitude of the spiritual family, even, brace yourself for this one, even the numerous wives of God, who joined with him to populate worlds without number by bearing the souls of men, even they possess no opposition to heeding the direction of their husband. Yeah, see these imaginary wives of God? You don't hear them complaining, do you? As the faithful sister seeks not to... The faithful sister. Keyword. The faithful sister seeks not to exalt herself as an equal to the head of a mortal, mortal family. So also the wives of God seek not to exalt themselves as equal to the head of the spiritual family. For this reason, until all things have been revealed, revelation shall be dispensed by the Father and not by his wives, and shall be sought by praying only to the Father in the name of the Son forevermore. I look forward to the day when these beliefs are just mocked or forgotten and just... There's there's no value or benefit in holding on to these beliefs except in trying to maintain a position of superiority over the other gender. And that's stupid because it's not even real. It's not even true. Like holding on to this false idea that men somehow have privilege over or should have privilege over women and that that's just how things should be. Ah, damn it gonna piss me off <clears throat> oh and perfect for the next perfect for me to be pissed off for the next paragraph because it says those who choose to be offended by these truths and those who change the ordinance in quotes to placate them hi this is hillary matthew ryan carol Ashley, and i like to play bingo online while listening to infants on thrones you can comment on this episode on the website infantsonthrones.com if you really like what you hear give the quorum a five-star rating and write a short review on itunes i did i did i did anyone for the closing prayer thank you for listening to infants on thrones, infants on thrones.